Part 2. Creating FutureCo. Practice 2. Know your audience. Stopping the SOS tsunami. I've never experienced an actual tsunami, thankfully, but the TV images of rapidly rising swells of water obliterating everything in their path are frightening enough. They make me panicky just looking at them and serve as a sharp reminder of that same feeling when, as an executive, being out of contact for a few hours, I would check in and see 200 new emails, countless voice messages and numerous text messages. I can still remember that, oh no, I'm drowning feeling. I would breathe, scan through the mound of messages, and immediately tackle the most urgent ones, deeply grateful for the non-urgent company-wide stuff that I felt I could ignore. I realized at some level that they were probably important, but I just didn't have the capacity or bandwidth to deal with them at that moment and maybe ever. Tomorrow would already have been booked up wall to wall and the next day and the next. There was the strategic planning offsite, then the staff roadshow, company-wide performance appraisals and in between the signing off of the internal staff newsletter. On top of all that, were the myriad of email briefs I routinely sent out to my department to keep them focused and on track. This was me, the corporate executive in full SOS, send out stuff, flight. Ironically, part of my portfolio was communication, and as aware as I was even then of the right way of approaching it, it's really tough to put into practice. Joining the SOS tsunami and even creating a few waves of your own is so much easier. Creating, generating and sending out the stuff, by which I mean corporate strategy messages, merger and acquisition notes, behavior and culture change initiatives, cost-cutting initiatives and so on, is alluring. As a leader, it gives you a sense of control. You set the agenda, decide what's off-limits, position the message optimally. It's really your show, with you as writer, producer, and star. And once you've flighted it all, there's the killer chaser, that warm glow of self-righteousness that comes from a sense that you've done everything possible to make sure that all employees are informed. The self-congratulatory mental box ticking that follows the countrywide roadshows, tick, with question time, there were very few anyway, all messages appearing in the glossy internal publication, tick. Providing managers with their weekly brief, now with color picture and translated into all 11 official languages, tick. We have shared information in the best way we know how. What more could we do? And then the cracker. Some external survey reveals that the biggest problem that the company faces the problem that is the root cause of all other problems is the famous C word, communication. It's enough to tear one's hair out. It's small consolation that what's being played out in this little microcosm is not endemic to the mining industry or South Africa, but is a worldwide phenomenon. The C word in companies globally has not only failed to improve in the last 20 years, but has actually gotten worse. Add to this the lowest levels of engagement ever seen in the global workforce, according to the Gallup Employee Engagement Survey in 2013. And it's not a pretty picture. Local anecdotal evidence backs this up. 
In not one company of the numerous blue-chip companies that Thinkspiration has assisted over the years has communication not emerged as an issue underlying poor performance, productivity declines, inefficiencies, strikes, and even the horror at Marikana. No matter how much stuff companies seem to produce, and by stuff, I don't just mean printed matter, I'm talking about meetings, sessions, committees, off-sites, etc., in however many formats, it doesn't seem to be working. Why? My favorite question. Is it not targeted enough? Not clear enough? Not on message? Probably all of the above, but there's more. Communication, as the first tool of leadership, needs to influence and persuade, not unleash an SOS tsunami. We need less stuff, more connection. I never thought I would have a flashback to my Communication 101 class, but it does provide some insight in this case, so please bear with me. This was my first exposure to the mechanistic model of communication, adapted from the esteemed engineering sciences, no less. According to this model, communication occurs when the meaning of the sender equals the meaning of the receiver, as confirmed by a feedback loop. Creating a new shared meaning requires an understanding of existing meaning, what the sender thinks about an issue and what the receiver thinks about an issue. As the sender, we usually have a good handle on our own meaning, but often no clue about the existing meaning of the receiver. And that's where the whole communication process tends to go off the rails. We create more and more and more stuff to compensate for that lack of knowledge, and then glossier and fancier and more expensive stuff. Like treating a toothache by amputating a foot, we are completely missing the point. We need to turn it around. That nice linear sender-receiver model, literally, and put the receiver at the starting point of the communication process. The fields of literature and psychology are awash with this receiver-first pearl of wisdom. In Harper Lee's classic, To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch advises his daughter Scout as follows. First of all, he says, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Stephen Covey, in his best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, exhorts us to seek first to understand, then to be understood. Over and above the common sense inherent in this listen-first approach, it's just plain good manners. If you want someone to listen to you, first listen to, understand, and show your appreciation of them. So, as leaders, in order to influence our audience, we first have to listen to and know our audience. What are they thinking? What are their issues? What are their fears? What could possibly be in it for them? Then, as leaders, we have to be courageous enough to address these issues and talk openly about them. The conflict averse among us may hope that if we don't mention the contentious issues, they will disappear. We will interpret the silence, the lack of questions, the non-interaction 
as signs that the meeting or roadshow went well. What we don't want to think about is what that silence really means. We don't want to imagine that while we were cruising through the PowerPoint deck, outlining the future strategic direction, we were up against a mental my issues ticker tape spooling around in our audience's heads that all but deafened them, not only to our words, but also to our meaning. Yes, our lips may have been moving, but our audience would not have heard a word we were saying. How can we stop that ticker tape? By having the courage to speak into the audience's issues up front. It's tightrope walking scary, but unbelievably powerful. Like most things, the issues lose their power when they are spoken about. At best, they dissolve or at least recede, freeing up space in the audience's minds and hearts to truly receive and engage with the incoming message, paving the way for real connection and, I dare say, indicating the starting point of effective communication. Two, listening sessions. A one-on-one listening session between a leader and his or her employees is incredibly powerful. Instead of the leader having the floor, as in most meetings, this time he or she shuts up and listens. By giving the recipient undivided attention and prompting him with a few questions as per the template I'll mention in a minute, the leader has the chance to climb into his recipient's skin and walk around in it for a moment. Over and above providing useful insights from another perspective, these sessions result in the recipient feeling deeply valued as a result of having been asked the million-dollar question, what do you think? The insights gained from the listening session become particularly powerful when reflected back to the leader's constituency or audience's feedback. Feeling that their issues have been heard, the audience is open and receptive to new messages. The listening session template. What's going well right now? What's good about working here? What's not going well? Why not? What keeps you awake at night? If you were CEO for a day, what three things would you change? Why? Two, knowing me, knowing you. Some meetings are diamonds and some, well, just disastrous right from the get-go. This is completely within the leader's control because the first question he asks determines the fate of the meeting. There's a lot of research to show that if the first question is a positively framed question and asked of everyone attending the meeting in a go-round-the-table format, the meeting is far more productive. This is because a positively framed question acts like a mental palate cleanser. It detoxifies our minds from current issues weighing us down and frees up space for us to think better. This tool also gives the quiet ones, who often have a valuable contribution to make, the opportunity to speak up. Secondly, because participants share a little bit of themselves, a new level of intimacy and closeness develops among them. Here are some examples of knowing me, knowing you, positively framed questions. What is the best thing that's happened to you in the last week or month? What compliment has someone given you that you have never forgotten? What are you grateful for today? What are you looking forward to? What are you succeeding in at the moment? 
Share the story of your career highlight. What was the last thing you remember that made you laugh out loud? Why are you happy to be part of this group? What have you done recently for the sheer joy of doing it? Two, pre and post meeting checklists. Sadly, effective on-point communication doesn't just happen. It requires preparation time and follow-up time. To this end, here are two checklists which guide both the preparation thought process and the follow-up process. The pre-meeting checklist. What is the takeout of this meeting? What do I want the participants to remember? How should their behavior change? From what to what? What makes this audience tick? What are their triggers? What is my single-minded message? How can I frame my message so that it appeals to their triggers? And how can I make it memorable using a story or anecdote? The post-meeting checklist. What have we agreed on? What are the next action steps? Who needs to know? Who is responsible for communicating this to them? What different channels should we use to communicate the message to various audiences? When will the communication take place? What about feedback? How will we know that the message has been received? Two, rounds of appreciation. This is another time to think tool and it's simple yet profound. I often refer to it as the only legal performance enhancing drug because that's exactly the effect it has. It's beautifully simple and works as follows. As a meeting concludes, the leader asks each participant to turn to his colleague on either the left or right and literally appreciate him or her. This can be done privately, that is one-on-one, -on -one, or publicly to the group. Never have I seen so many grown men and women simultaneously cringe and relish something as they do this. In the absence of formalizing this, it just doesn't happen. But if you're courageous enough to insist on it regularly, you'll be amazed at how quickly it results in a cohesive team with deep bonds. Appreciation is something that few people forget. The great things that other people see in us and say to us are precious and indelible.